So this morning, we take a break, as we've been saying, from our two short sermon series we've been focusing on this fall. So I think the slide will be changed. I think we're just uh, uh, having some little technical difficulties this morning. But we're taking a little break from those sermon series, and instead, uh, we're focusing on something new for this morning. So we just finished our sermon series, We Are the Church, where we saw the foundations for church membership, how it's biblical, why it matters, and practically, as we just talked about, where we're now going as a church with either reaffirming or joining here. So that was the We Are the Church sermon series. And then starting next week, what we'll be doing is we'll be starting a short sermon series called The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. And there, we'll talk about for a few weeks the importance of not only doing the Lord's work, but especially biblically doing it in the way he tells us. And that will apply to us all in our personal Christian lives, but will especially apply it to our church as a whole and our church structure. So that's starting next week. But that then brings us again now to this week, because now this week, we're looking at a passage that isn't technically part of either of those series. Instead, for this week, we're taking a break and we're just fixing our eyes, church, on one of the most beautiful paragraphs in the whole Bible, all because it's one of the greatest passages about Jesus in the whole Bible. But even here, as we'll talk about more later in the message, we'll see that it actually still applies to what we're talking about here this fall, because the church is going to be mentioned here as well. But with that said, so as you can see in the sermon title on your bulletin and what soon will be on the screen, the sermon title we're looking at is The Preeminence of Jesus. The Preeminence of Jesus. And I know that title, as you might see in your bulletin there, might sound confusing, (laughs) Because I'm sure preeminence is not a word that you or I use every day. And I'm usually not a big fan of using big words that can sound confusing in sermons or sermon titles. But the reason I use that word, and I want you to see this for yourself, is mainly because if you do look at our passage that was just read a minute ago, in the Bible itself, we see that word used. Look at the end of verse 18. Our paragraph is about this. That in everything, he, Jesus, might be preeminent. And so that's the main idea of this paragraph, how Jesus' church is preeminent, or how he rightly has preeminence. But as for what that word actually means, both in Greek and in English, in Greek, this word there just basically means something like first place, or being supreme. And in English, both of those words could work. We could translate it as Jesus' first place, or Jesus has supremacy, But the reason why preeminence is used here in the Bible in our sermon title and why it's probably the best, even though it's a confusing word, is because if we just say Jesus has first place, it may sound like we're talking about some strange race or contest or something. And on the other hand, if we just say Jesus is supreme, we might not really get that emphasis on first. And so that's why preeminent is actually quite helpful here because pre implies first before all else. And eminence, as you might know, carries with it the idea of supremacy. And so all that being said, that then is the idea here in Colossians 1, the preeminence of our Savior Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus is first, that he's supreme. And that's then what I hope we all leave here this morning knowing more about and feeling more. That this is true of our Jesus, that he's huge, that he's that great, that he's first, that he's supreme over all. 
But first, before we get into all that and our outline of how we're going to go through our passage this morning, I want us first to see the context of how this topic of Jesus' preeminence comes up here in the Bible, how this comes up here in the Bible, because I think it can really apply to us. And so notice this for yourself. So notice, look down your Bibles, how Paul, inspired by God, gets to verses 15 through 20 of our chapter. And to see this, we're going to look at the context before our paragraph, starting in verse 11 and reading through verse 14. And as you're going to see what he's doing here, as he's praying for the Colossian church, and the Bible says this, may you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this is a prayer for strength, for joy, and especially, as you see, for giving gospel thanks. Right, and you can see the gospel mentioned explicitly in verses 14 and 15, 13 and 14, how God delivered and saved us, and how in God's Son, in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And those then are the words right before our passage that starts in verse 15. And in fact, in the original Greek, verse 15 isn't a new sentence. Instead, literally it reads, the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God. In other words, the Bible here is talking about the gospel of forgiveness in verses 13 and 14, and then flawlessly transitions in the same sentence to this huge paragraph about Jesus starting in verse 15. And so I hope you see that for yourself. But I bring this up because I think this applies because this then means that it's talking here about the gospel that causes the Bible to get into intense details about Jesus' supremacy. Paul transitions from the basic gospel in 13 and 14 right into the grand supremacy of Jesus. Or to say it another way, one of the things that Paul shows us here is that the reason, church, it's so helpful to dig deep into theology and who God is and who Jesus really is is not because we just want to be heady intellectual Christians or anything like that. Nor is all of that separated from the gospel. And I say all that because sometimes people think that any deeper theology isn't really necessary because all that matters is the gospel. And while it's true that the gospel in itself is simple and the center of our faith and it matters infinitely, what's also true is that the gospel of Jesus includes who Jesus really is. And I mean who he deeply, profoundly, theologically is. And that's why this transition is fascinating and and quite important because think about it. Paul could have talked about the gospel in verses 13 and 14 about forgiveness and then totally skipped verses 15 through 20 and had his next verse be verse 21 where he applies the gospel personally to the people listening. And, And we often do that. Often our gospel is simply Jesus came, died, rose, and you should believe. And again, there is definitely nothing wrong with that. But as you can see in God's word, what God does through Paul here is he's talking about the basic gospel of salvation and forgiveness, but then God also inspires Paul to use this as a launch pad to talk about the massiveness of who Jesus really is, showing Jesus' supremacy and why we should worship and trust him more. 
And so that's the context here. And that's why I hope this morning will be helpful to you personally in your faith. Because you might be here thinking that Christianity is just about us being sinners and Jesus coming to die and rise and that's it. And again, although that is central, what we'll see this morning and one of the best texts in the Bible is that the Jesus who came and died and rose is not merely a savior who happened to come just 2,000 years ago. <laughs> not at all. He's much more and it's quite amazing. But that finally brings us to our outline. So again, in this paragraph, we're gonna see the preeminence of Jesus how Jesus has supremacy in first place. And for our outline, then our overarching question this morning is going to be, well then, how or in what ways is Jesus preeminent? And to answer this, we'll see three answers in our passage, three answers, and those three answers will be our three sections this morning. And so that's our outline, how is Jesus preeminent? And then three answers. But also, and one last thing on this, what we'll also see this morning is that these three answers also correspond in a way to the Bible's overarching story as well, which is interesting, but we'll talk about more of that later. Well, that all said, church, let's now begin our first section together. And so we are asking, how is Jesus preeminent? And our first answer comes in verses 15 through 17, but we'll start by reading just verse 15. So if you want to look down your Bibles, Colossians 1, verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so in this first sentence, we see two things about Jesus. First, our paragraph starts with, quote, he is the image of the invisible God. And this is a huge statement because as you probably know, one of the main things we're told about the living God in the Old Testament is that he can't be seen. He's invisible. But then what's amazing is that in the New Testament, what's revealed to us isn't just a savior but it's God himself coming to save, coming to be seen in a sense. And we know this because it was Jesus himself who said to one of his disciples, Philip, quote, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so we could spend a lot more time on this, but the point here is clear. If you want to see God, especially who he is, what he's like, the Bible says, look at Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing here. But then second in this sentence, we get the truth that Jesus is, quote, the firstborn of all creation. And it's this that perhaps has caused people the most problem maybe in this whole paragraph because if we were to just take that phrase away from the context here, and especially if we were to ignore the context of the Old Testament, we might think that this is saying that Jesus is the first to be born out of the whole creation, that Jesus is the first to be created, And that actually is an ancient heresy as you might know called Arianism and one which sadly some people like the Jehovah's Witnesses still believe today. And like that first phrase, we could spend a lot of time on this phrase and we could show many biblical reasons why it can't be biblically true that Jesus was created. But let me just share with you two quick things to show that that's not the Bible's point here. First, you can see that that's true even in our passage Because notice, after this in verse 16, what's coming up, the paragraph is about to tell us why Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And what's the reason? The beginning of verse 16, for or because by Jesus all things were created. And literally that just says all was created. And so the idea that is that anything that is in the category of created, all is created by Jesus. And so biblically, Jesus isn't part of the created. 
So that's the first way we know that Jesus isn't created. But then second, and quickly, even plainer, uh, why we know this isn't true, is when we look at the Old Testament text that Paul's almost certainly referencing here. Because this is actually a promise from the Old Testament that God makes to David and then to the Messiah in Psalm 89, 27. Because there the Bible promises, quote, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings on earth. And it's there that we see what this idea of firstborn meant to them back then and in the Bible. Because we can see that it wasn't primarily a term that just literally always meant being born first. Instead, as you probably know, the idea of a firstborn carried with it the idea of an inheritance. And specifically because of Psalm 89, it carried with it the idea of a global kingly inheritance being the highest of kings on earth. And all that then is what Paul is saying just there in verse 15. Jesus is how we see God. Jesus is the inheritor and the ruler of all creation. And all of that is amazing in itself, but that's just the beginning of this paragraph. Which leads us now to verse 16. So again, we're asking, how is Jesus preeminent? I know this is a lot, but stick with me. Verse 16, look down. Let's read that now. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And so, as we saw a minute ago, that first word for, it shows the reason why Jesus is the image of God and the firstborn, the inheritor of all creation. And why is he? Again, for by him all things were created. Because Jesus created all things. And notice, it's not just all things, but it's all things in heaven and on earth which is supposed to remind us right away of the first verse in the whole Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so according to our Bibles here, who is Jesus? He's the image of God. He's the inheritor and ruler over all creation, yes. But he's also the creator. And he's not just vaguely the creator, but the Bible here is implying that we have every right to read Genesis 1-1 and think, in the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. But that's not even all this verse tells us. It gets even bigger. So all things are created by Jesus. But now notice the other prepositions in this verse as well. So, that, so as you can see, by him all things were created. And then it goes on to list all these things. And quickly, as you can see in that list there in verse 16, those, that list focuses on things that seem to have authority. And so the point here in verse 16 is that Jesus alone created and really has all authority. But that's the first preposition, by. But then at the end, two more prepositions are added in this verse. All things were created through him and for him. And through him expresses agency and means, but perhaps most significant for us is that phrase, for him. Because this then shows us importantly, Jesus here, God here, isn't just the creator. He isn't just the one who started all this with the by and through. Instead, Jesus here is also told to be the one this is all for. And in that for includes the idea of a plan and a purpose and an end goal. And practically then this means that there is nothing haphazard happening in this creation. Nothing is random. Or to say it another way, the Bible is saying here that Jesus didn't just create everything and then hope for the best. Not at all. 
Instead, all things are by him and through him and for him. Which leads to verse 17, which is our final verse of the section. Verse 17. And he, Jesus, is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And so as you can see, poetically, this is very similar to verse 15, where there's two things mentioned on purpose. First, the Bible says here that Jesus is before all things. And this is talking about the fact that Jesus is probably before all, th- he was before all things in time, but then it probably also includes the fact that Jesus is before all things in importance too. But most significant in this verse, and this is intentionally how this first section here ends, is that phrase, and in him all things hold together. And this is about as profound as our brains can get. Because what this verse is saying is that Jesus literally, and I say literally because this is precisely what God is saying through the Apostle Paul here, Jesus literally sustains all things. In him all things hold together or subsist would be another way of translating that word. And if that's surprising, this is even tall elsewhere in the Bible as well as you might know in Hebrews 1.3. But there it's even more specific because there the author of Hebrews talking about Jesus once again says, and he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so this is a biblical New Testament idea. It's amazing. But God repeated it clearly twice so that we'd get it. And and the idea is that the world, the universe, is not only created by Jesus, and it's not only on a purposeful trajectory for Jesus, but amazingly, right now, our God, specifically, Jesus Christ, is holding the universe together. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. In him, all things hold together. All things subsist. Or to say it negatively, without him holding it together, presently, right now, everything would literally fall apart. My hands, my body, your bodies, this building, this earth, this universe, all held together by Jesus Christ. So that's verses 15 through 17. I know it's a lot, but with all that covered, now we can summarize our first answer to how Jesus is preeminent. And how is he preeminent? Well, amazingly, he's how we see God. He is the creator. He's the inheritor and ruler of the universe. He's the one this is all for. And finally, he's holding this all together. That is Jesus Christ. And as for an application of all this, I just hope, if you're sitting there out there this morning, I just hope you actually believe all that. And I say that because I think for many of us Christians, the Jesus we worship The Jesus we think about, the Jesus we come to worship here on Sunday mornings is mainly just thought about the Savior who was born as we celebrate on Christmas. And and then also, amazingly, of course, is the Savior who died and rose as we celebrate on Easter. And again, that is the central gospel message. But then when we come to God's word, we see that he's so much more than just that. We see that the one who came as we celebrate on Christmas, is the one who created everything. And then we see the one who died and rose as we celebrate on Easter is the one who was literally holding the wood together on the cross that he was dying on. And of course, we can sum all of this that we've been talking about by just simply saying, as we often do, Jesus is God. 
And that is obviously true and beautiful and amazing. But after seeing what we just saw in those three verses this morning, I just encourage you that when you then say Jesus is God, that you also really know what it means. (laughs) Because being God, it means that Jesus is the Genesis 1-1 creator. Jesus really is the goal of everything. And Jesus really is the reason all of this exists right now. And so that's our first answer to how Jesus is preeminent. And if we or our paragraph just stopped there, I think we'd have enough to say, okay, all that being true, yep, Jesus is preeminent. And I hope you're feeling maybe a bit more now how true that actually is. But our paragraph doesn't stop there. Instead, now as we'll continue on, we'll see two more reasons, two more answers to how Jesus is preeminent. And yet, before we do read on, remember now how I said earlier in the message that these three answers also, in a way, correspond to the whole story of the Bible. And I bring that up because if you want to think of it this way, thus far in our answer, we have Jesus being the creator and the sustainer and the one who has a plan and purpose for everything. And all those things are things that we kind of see about God even on the first pages of the Bible. But then, as we know, in the Bible's storyline and in the story of this universe, something happens that messes the world up. And so not only do we need to know the creator and the sustainer, but being sinners ourselves, we need to know the one who maybe did something to make everything right again. Which brings us to our second reason Jesus is preeminent in our paragraph. And for this, now let's read actually verses 19 and 20. We're going to come back to verse 18 as that's the central verse in the paragraph. But for now, we'll read verses 19 and 20. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. To see what's unique, so to see what's unique about these verses, first, notice right away that we have something special said about God here. Because as you can see, this, these verses start with that, for in him, that's in Jesus, all the fullness of God. And so right away, we have all the fullness of God here in this paragraph. And so then the question naturally becomes, well, if the fullness of God is here, so what does this fullness of God then do? And this is no small question because think about it. In our naturally kind of hesitant about the creator God tendencies that we have, how do we usually feel when we think about all the truths that we just heard about God in our first section? That God's the creator, the the all-powerful sustainer, the one this is all for. But then as for us, we're sinners. And so we naturally think, well, that being true, I'm a little afraid of God. And if God were to ever fully show up, his fullness, we'd, we'd be in trouble. And we naturally feel that because we know that's what we deserve. We kind of naturally know our sin. And so that's what we'd expect possibly from the fullness of God. But instead of that, see for yourself what the fullness of God does here in these verses. Because here the fullness of God does two things, two things. Quote, for in him the fullness of God, number one, was pleased to dwell. Meaning God was happy to do this, to be fully present and saving in Christ. But then two, amazingly, the fullness of God was pleased through Jesus, quote, to reconcile. (laughs) To reconcile. 
And so when the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe shows up and is fully present in Jesus Christ, one, he was happy with what he was doing, and two, he was intentionally reconciling. That's our God. And that word reconcile just means to make everything right again. Like when you're in a relationship that needs reconciliation, it means making amends to make it right again. And so this verse is saying that Jesus, being God, came to do that. He didn't come to say, I'm holy and you're all not, and so you have no hope. That is what we deserve, but that's not grace. That's not the gospel. Instead, the good news is in Jesus. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell and to reconcile. And how did he do this? Well, that's how the paragraph ends. As you see, verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so that's how he did it. And important here is that word peace. Because that word's supposed to remind us, especially based on the Old Testament, of that idea of shalom, which is a word that we simply translate as peace, but it wasn't a word that just meant no fighting. Instead, the idea of shalom in the Old Testament was of everything right and good and beautiful and true again as it was meant to be. And that's then the idea here. God comes, and his name is Jesus. And why did he come? To make that shalom. And how does it happen? Well, it happens because he really took upon himself sin and punishment on the cross. And in that way, the cross really was and is the central moment of all history, all because it's what deals with the sins of God's people and because it's what brings about the reconciliation of the whole cosmos and brings peace. And that's the gospel. But as a quick side note, as you can see, this text does say, in case you're wondering about this, this text does say that Jesus reconciles to himself all things. And some people have tried to make this support universalism, as it's called, where every single person will be saved. But in brief, church, I just want to let you know that that doesn't work elsewhere in the Bible at all. And so if you were to believe that and cite this text, you would have to say that Jesus and the Bible aren't telling the truth elsewhere. But importantly, I want you to know that even from this text, that doesn't work. Because yes, Jesus is making everything right again by reconciling and bringing peace. And yes, he does so mainly because of what he did on the cross. But also, we know in the Bible that with this gospel accomplished, now God is reconciling in two major ways for individual people, for individual people. First, real people by the grace of God are being saved and forgiven by that cross. But then second, soberly, we have to say that the other biblical way Jesus is going to bring peace and come back one day is he's going to come back and judge and eradicate this world of all of its evil. And so for those who do not trust in Christ and the cross, that's the way that he will finally, once and forever, reconcile all things in the universe to himself. That's a side note, but all that being said, as you can see, this then, church, is the second way that Jesus is preeminent and supreme. He's not only the creator and the sustainer and the goal of everything, but he's also the one, as we know, who entered history, who went to that bloody cross, who rose and is now reconciling all things to himself and making peace. And in some ways, this is even more amazing than the first answer. Although we're used to hearing it, and, and although it is amazing, 
We should be stunned by it that Jesus is God. It's fearfully amazing that Jesus created everything and holds everything together. Although that's very true, biblically in some ways, it is even more amazing that this God, that this Jesus would then care about tiny sinners like us. That he'd come suffer and die and rise for us. That he'd make peace by going to a bloody cross. Because I mean, why would he do such a thing? But he did. Jesus did. And since he did, again, we have to say, of course, he deserves all preeminence, supremacy in our hearts and in this world. But that then leads to the final answer to how Jesus is preeminent. And this will be just verse 18. And again, remember here the storyline of the Bible. So thus far we have Jesus as the creator. We have him who, who came and did what needed to be done to reconcile. And now let's read verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. Then everything he might be preeminent. And so, as you might have maybe just felt as that verse was read, it's this verse, especially the first half, that's kind of surprising in the midst of this majestic paragraph. Because in this paragraph, we have these huge ideas like, like creation and Jesus sustaining everything and the gospel and the cross. And then here in the climactic middle of this paragraph, we get these ideas. And he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And so we have to ask, what does this mean? Why is this here? And the answer is because although it may not seem so to us at first, these two ideas are actually quite significant in the whole storyline of the Bible as well. Because first, think about what it means that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That may sound strange, but all that means is that when Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning 2,000 years ago after taking care of sin, he was the beginning. And beginning implies he was the first one, and it implies that he started, he began something new. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches. And so we should think of the gospel this way. Creation, sin, Jesus comes, he dies, and then he rises from the dead. But then in that resurrection, he started something new. He was and he is the beginning. The trajectory of downward spiral because of sin has been reversed. All because Jesus has dealt with sin. He's risen from the dead. And now he's only the first one of many who are going to be raised from the dead with the whole creation to follow. And so that's the first thing this verse teaches. But then amazingly, and as you can see, this is literally intentionally the very center of this paragraph. And it connects to everything we've been talking about this fall and everything we're going to keep talking about this fall, which is partly why I chose this text this morning. Amazingly, this verse also tells us, and he is the head of the body and the church. And this is perhaps the most surprising here in this paragraph, because let's be honest, when, when we think about this Jesus, this God, this creator, sustainer, gospel accomplisher, the one who rose from the dead and is coming back, when we think of him, we usually think about how we individually relate to him. And we often do think about his gospel plan for the world. But how often in thinking about him and his glory and his plan and his gospel, how often do we think so prominently of the church? We often don't. 
But, as we saw in our last sermon series, so we see it again here, biblically the church is actually quite central in all this. And why? Well, because as you can see, the point here of this paragraph is that Jesus is the creator and the savior, and now he's also the one who is enacting this new creation, resurrection, restoration plan, and he's doing it, quote, as the head of the body, the church. And for us then, this means that in this whole paragraph about Jesus and really in this overarching story of the universe and of the Bible, us gathering in Jesus' name and following Jesus' authority in his word, this, this thing we call church, the assembly, is no small deal. Instead, what's implied here and what's plain elsewhere is that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. And he did make peace and is bringing that shalom back. And one day, he's going to come back and make it all happen at once. But until that day, his plan right now is the church. The assembly. It's people really knowing him, loving him, trusting him, gathering together, worshiping him, doing life together, growing in him through his word, sharing his gospel, all for his glory until he comes back. And that then is our third answer to how Jesus is preeminent because here we see he's first place and supreme, not only is the creator and the sustainer, not only is the one who accomplished the gospel, but also even right now, he's preeminent as the head of his church. He's, the, he's preeminent as the one right now guiding his assembly and using his assembly for his plan, for the world's good, and for his glory. And that then is the three ways Jesus is preeminent in our text. And my prayer and hope for all of us is that we understand, believe, and most importantly, love these things about Jesus. Because as I hope you've seen, the Jesus we worship The Jesus who came and died isn't just the Savior who came 2,000 years ago. He is, but he's so much more as well. Instead, Jesus is also the God who created this all. Jesus is the sovereign ruler who's holding this all together. Jesus is the one who is the goal of everything. Jesus is the one who came and rose. Jesus is the redeemer who's enacting a cosmic reconciliation. And finally, Jesus is the one who's alive right now in his head over his church as he's bringing this all about. That's our Jesus. He's that massive and glorious and great and loving and so he's worthy of our worship and our trust. But now as we close with all that said, church, I just want to simply end here by applying this with applications. First, to those of you who are here and might not trust in this Jesus and then second, for those of us who are here and by God's grace do trust Christ. And so first, for those of you who are here and for some reason or another, In your heart, you know you genuinely do not trust this Jesus. I just hope, after hearing all that, that you're seeing that what we as Christians believe isn't just some personal salvation that deals with our personal sin and guilt. Now, of course, we do believe that. We do believe that because God is perfect, while each and every one of us in this room will admit that we are sinners, and sin is serious. And so we do believe that we are personally forgiven through the historical death and the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel in a nutshell. But also, if you're here and you don't trust Christ, I hope you're seeing that what we believe is bigger than just us and our sin. Instead, we really believe in God, and his name is Jesus. 
and he is reconciling the whole entire cosmos. And we believe that this world and we are not right. That's why we all feel this ache that something's off and we just know and believe that Jesus is the one who came to deal with that, both for us personally in our sin and for the whole creation and its mess. And so if you are here and you don't trust Christ in your heart, I just pray that you understand that. That Jesus is not some just model of love or religious teacher alone. Instead, he's so much more. And then personally, for all of us, all we do to know him and be forgiven by him is trust him. And so again, if you're here and you don't trust him for whatever reason, I just pray that right now you consider coming to faith in him. Trust this Jesus. And as always, if you'd like to talk more about the service, please, I'd love to talk with you. But again, I just encourage you, trust Jesus. All because he really is the creator, the sustainer, and the goal of everything. And amazingly, he has open arms for anyone who will come to him in faith. And so that's the application to those here who may not know Jesus. But now finally, for those of us here who by the grace of God do know Jesus Christ, I just encourage us to leave here with two quick things in mind. Two quick things. First, I just encourage us all to really be amazed at who Jesus actually is. And be amazed, because this is incredible, that this is our Jesus. I mean, just think about all the things we talked about this morning. And so this is incredibly amazing. But the challenge for us each now as we go back into our lives, into our world, is to really believe all this. Because let's, let's be honest, we may say and actually believe these things, but isn't it true that so often, daily, hourly, we downplay who Jesus really is? And so we need to know this is our Jesus. He's this big, this sovereign, this loving, this close to us individually and as a church. And the more we believe that deep in our bones, the more we will worship him and trust him. So that's the first thing. But then second and finally, and along with this, I also encourage us all, especially with all we're talking about as a church this fall, to see here again how Jesus' plan for the church really is central in all of this. It really is. Now now we need to be clear here. We shouldn't believe that and then use that to think that Jesus needs us or can't do this without us or anything. That's just not true. But nevertheless, this is Jesus' plan, the church. And so let's leave here knowing and really feeling that it's truly a blessing to be part of a local body, a local flock, a local family, all because as normal and as ordinary as all of this may sometimes feel, the truth is that the church entrusted with the gospel is the creator, the sustainer, the savior's plan for changing this world for his glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.